This morning, we're looking at Hot Topics Week 6. We're going to look at marriage this morning, if you haven't guessed already. This is Week 6 of our Hot Topics series, and um, this is one of the sermon topics that was voted on by you for us to talk about over this summer. And so... We're going to dig in. Next week, we're going to actually talk about the number one vote voted on sermon uh, topic for, for this sermon series, and uh, we're going to talk about mental health next week. Um, it's actually such an important topic that I'm looking at some small group uh, centered around mental health and, uh, and, and doing that. But this morning, we're looking at another one of the topics chosen by you. You guys know that we went through almost a year and a half journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and so this summer, we've chosen to do something a little bit different. And uh, I gave you some choices of topics that you would like us to look at. And so this morning we're looking at marriage. What does the Bible have to say about marriage? What does the Bible have to say about marriage? Well, actually it says a lot because marriage is God's idea. And since marriage is God's idea, we should look at the revealed Word of God to discover the beauty and the purpose of marriage. A few weeks ago, you guys know we looked at sexuality. And in doing so, when we looked at sexuality, we discovered that God created marriage and sex and sexuality. And just like our God created sex and created sexuality, and he designed it with purpose and with pleasure, marriage is also designed with purpose and with pleasure. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to jump in here this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, uh, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and morning, the sixth day. So here we see male and female, right? Same intrinsic value and worth, created with the same value, the same worth, representatives of God on the earth and in the earth. Same value, same purpose. What is that purpose? It's our creative mandate. We've talked about this before. It's to join in covenant with God and with each other to have children, to fill the earth, to bring order, and to rule. Right? So that's the creative mandate. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. Our creative mandate is to, is to join with God and each other in covenant to have children, to fill the earth, to bring order, to rule. And then, so that's the same purpose, and then we're supposed to have the same pleasure. And that pleasure is to find joy in our purpose together. Together in covenant, having children, bringing order, and ruling together. Now, Adam and Eve's rebellion, this is very important, Adam and Eve's rebellion, it brought chaos into the covenant instead of taking the covenant to the chaos. 
And we have been dealing with the ramifications of that rebellion ever since. But that does not change the design of marriage or the fact that we should find purpose and pleasure in it. But it did make it harder to find purpose and pleasure in it. Because we no longer trust each other as covenant keepers. There's a lack of trust. And so apart from the grace of God and the restorative work of Jesus' death and resurrection, we would still be bound in this curse that our first parents brought on us. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who has rescued us and redeemed us from the curse. But this morning, I want to invite you to look freshly at the purpose and pleasure of marriage. I also want you to know that if you're single, you are not less than. You are still in Christ, in covenant with God to bring order to rule and order to chaos and to rule. You can still find pleasure and you can still fulfill your purpose. There's just no multiplying, okay? A word about uh, the content this morning. A word about the content. When I'm asked to perform a marriage, a wedding, the very first pre-marriage session I have with the couple covers God's design in marriage. So much of the ideas, much of the bones of this sermon comes from a series on marriage from a ministry that's no longer active. So much of the content of this sermon this morning is built on those bones and expanded from the content that you'll get in your first premarital, pre-marriage counseling session with me. So welcome to pre-marriage counseling church. All right. Now this is not going to be a lot of steps to improve your marriage. It takes more than one sermon to do that. But it will be a sermon on the purpose and pleasure of marriage. Now, why are we doing it this way? Because I believe that if we can better understand the why of marriage, we will be more willing to do the what of marriage. And if you're married, I believe a better understanding of the why of marriage will help you want to do the work of marriage. Because yes, marriage is work. And the married people said amen. It is often hard. It's often crucifying. It should be sanctifying. It should be good. Marriage should be a good, sanctifying work. What does that mean, sanctifying? It means perfecting. It means making holy. It means making righteous. It means moving from sin and moving to holiness. A good marriage is sanctifying. A good marriage brings us closer to God as we come closer to one another. It sanctifies us. It makes us holy. A good marriage and a good attitude in marriage makes us want to be sanctified. I said it again. A good attitude in marriage makes us want to be sanctified. And oftentimes we have to depend on our sanctification in our marriage to make it. Because in a marriage, in the sanctifying work, we are to think about our desires and our wants less and about the needs and the wants of our spouse more. We think about ruling less and serving more. We think about getting my way less and getting our way more. So marriage is sanctifying, right? So let's, let's jump in. I've got coffee and water. I'm going a long time. Are y'all ready? Marriage and God's story. So let's talk about marriage and God's story. In the beginning, so the story of God 
is one of good news. So it begins with a wedding ceremony right there. After God created the heavens and the earth, and he filled the earth, and he made the man and the woman, he, he united them in marriage, and God created marriage for his purpose, not ours, as marriage belongs to him. And he determined that marriage would be sacred, a sacred union on which he would build the foundation for establishing families, and ultimately for establishing society and culture. So what is marriage? Let's talk about what marriage is. Marriage is God designed marriage from the beginning to be an intimate covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That was his design and desire in marriage. We see it. We're just going to read from Genesis chapter 2, right? And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman, for she was taken from man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So biblically, Moses, when he's talking and writing about marriage in Genesis, he characterizes marriage this way. He says, this is why, or because of marriage, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So in the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul affirm Moses' definition of marriage, and, and Moses got his definition from God. So both Jesus and Paul and Moses all agree with God's definition of marriage. Jesus says in Matthew, he says, for this reason, he quotes from Genesis. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father's mother, join with his wife, to become one flesh. He says in Mark, again, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Paul says the same thing. He quotes again. From this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Listen, it's repeated over and over and over and over again in Scripture that marriage is God's idea and that it's a man and a woman united in covenant together. So what do we learn here again about God's design in marriage from the start? Well, first of all, this, it's exclusive. If you're writing it down, write it down. It's exclusive. It's exclusive. One man and his wife, one wife and her husband, it's exclusive. God did not design marriage to be polygamous. <laughs> he designed marriage as a pair, male and female, in covenant with God and each other. It's exclusive, Right? So that means when you're married, when you enter in the covenant, you've entered into covenant. It's not, you're not going to enter into, to, you're not going to be married to more than one person. You're not going to be married to one person and have a side, a thing on the side, right? Right? I mean, that's, that's not God's design of marriage. So it's exclusive. Secondly, it is not defined by temporary ties, by temporary family ties, but by permanent covenant promises. What does that mean? It means that, that it requires a covenant commitment. It's leaving behind one societal contract for a new and better covenant. It is a picture of the church. So you're, you're leaving your father and your mother, and you are that, that temporal familiar tie, and you're covenanting with someone else. You don't get to pick your family. You don't get to pick your mama and your daddy. But you do get to pick your spouse. So marriage is a picture of Christ choosing a people for himself. 
Paul said it's a mystery. It looks, points to Christ in the church. And let me say this. If you are married and you aren't choosing your spouse above your parents, your marriage is going to suffer. Now, what does that mean? It means, practically, it means that when you and your husband have a fight, you don't go to your mama and, or your daddy and tell them every bad thing that jerk just said to you. Right? Because mama ain't going to forgive like you're going to forgive. Right? Now, if there's actual issues that need to be dealt with, they need to be dealt with. But just because you have a little, little you know, you disagree over, over the covers. And that man is the jerk or that woman is, don't know how to cook. Just order some pizza and be okay. So it's, it's a covenant with one another. It's a new covenant, and it represents Christ in the church. Again, it, it's a picture of Christ choosing for himself a people. All right, and it's, it's a lifetime commitment. It says that they would hold fast. It's a lifetime commitment. God designed marriage to be a binding covenant. He even created our bodies to respond chemically to produce a hormone during the covenant act of sex that bonds two together emotionally. God did all this. This was God's idea. The marriage vows aren't just some random lines of romance. They aren't some poem designed to simply make us feel warm and fuzzy when they're recited in a ceremony. The marriage vows are intended to reinforce and to remind us of God's design for the permanence of marriage. For better, for worse, right? For richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. As long as you both shall live. This is covenant. This is commitment, this is a promise, this is a vow, and it has to be taken seriously and not entered into lightly. Another purpose of marriage that happens in God's design is intimacy, intimacy, oneness. That covenant, that covenant allows for, it's important, that covenant allows for, that means that outside of the covenant, it's not allowed, but inside the covenant, it allows for and leads to intimacy. See, when you, when you, try, to, when you try to act like a husband and wife before you're a husband and wife, you're just asking for problems. Because you are engaging in things without accountability and without covenant, without promise. So they, there is a covenant. This covenant allows for and leads to intimacy. They become one flesh. See, God isn't trying to prevent us from enjoying one another. But he understands that we need boundaries to be able to flourish and to live the best life that he has planned for us. So this intimacy, this oneness, this becoming one flesh is a definite reference to sex, but it's not merely about sex. It's about the oneness of purpose and pleasure that is found within marriage. In this oneness, there should be an openness.
You are not behaving as one flesh if you're still living as if you never entered in the covenant. So what does that mean? Let me practice for a second. One flesh means you should both have access to your checking accounts. One flesh means that you should both have access to your social media accounts. One flesh means that you should both have access to each other's passwords. One flesh means you should both know each other's friends and who they're hanging out with. One flesh means that you should have access to one another's phones. My wife can look at my phone whenever she wants to. We know what we're doing. We know where we're going. We keep in touch with one another. And we are open because we are one. We don't make decisions, big decisions, without talking it over. Because sex without marital oneness is not true intimacy. Did you understand what I just said? Sex without marital oneness is not true intimacy. True intimacy is about pleasure and purpose. Together, united. I heard this week about a man, actually watched him share this to his church because he's a preacher heard this week about a man who doesn't let his wife read books including theology books that he hasn't read yet until he reads them first because he and i quote doesn't want his wife to outpace him that's the funniest thing i ever heard husband If you're worried about your wife outpacing you, instead of trying to slow her down, maybe you just need to run a little faster. Come on, somebody. Intimacy isn't concerned with being in the lead. It's concerned with keeping covenant purpose and pleasure together. But... However, marriage was never meant to be an end in itself. So, as the story of God unfolds, he reveals his greater intention for marriage. So, marriage is a covenant promise. Writing stuff down, you want to write that down. Marriage is a covenant promise. God's love for his people has always been steadfast and sure, and he holds fast to them in a permanent, exclusive, intimate covenant relationship. Vows and promises are the basis for covenant. On a wedding day, right, the bride and the groom make these vows to one another, promising to love each other for a lifetime, regardless of the circumstances. And throughout Scripture, there are numerous parallels drawn between the covenant promises of God and His chosen people and the covenant promises of a husband and a wife in marriage. Numerous times, God calls Himself a husband and His people a bride. We see it in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so God will rejoice over you. In Revelation chapter 19, we see this. Verse 7, it says, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. And his bride has prepared herself. Who's the bride? The church. 
Revelation 21.2, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 9 of Revelation 21, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Revelation 22.17, but the spirit and the bride say, now together, we are together saying, let everyone who hears come. Come, let the one who is thirsty come, to come to Jesus. Let the one who desires come to, the, come to the family of God. Let the one who desires take the waters of life freely. It's this covenant picture. Marriage is a covenant picture of the promise of God for his people. And God is better at keeping his promises than we are. And I am so thankful that God is a better God. See, the problem has existed since Genesis 3 regarding the difference between God's covenant and ours. God makes promises and keeps them. We make promises and break them. When the people of God sinned against him and they would chase other gods, their sinful deeds are named spiritual adultery and whoredom and strong language for sin. We see it over and over again. We see it in Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is a testament to God's faithfulness to his, who his bride, even in her unfaithfulness. See it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Psalm. We see over and over again God's faithfulness to his bride. Now, this covenant-keeping God This covenant-keeping God is faithful to us. And when we sin against him, we're not just, or when we sin, we're not just sinning against ourselves. When we sin, someone is sinned against. And in the garden, from the very beginning, our sin was first against God. But over and over and over and over again, we see this God who pursues us and intervenes and provides payment for our sin that is sufficient and everlasting. We see it in regards to covenant in Malachi chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, I would love it if you could turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, because this is a very important passage, and we're going to also, I'm going to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 in a bit. But if you've got your Bible, you want to look at Malachi chapter 2 with me. Speaking of covenant and covenant-keeping God and the covenant of marriage, Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 13, says this. This is another thing you do. God's like laying it out against these, the people. And he says, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, Why? Well, because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of his spirit? What is the one seeking? What is God seeking? He's seeking godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves.
carefully and do not act treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with him, or else where is the God of justice? Listen to me. Christian marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman and our creator God. God puts a portion of his spirit in that marriage union, that covenant. The spirit is bound to your marriage. So what does that tell me? It tells me that God is fighting for your marriage. It tells me that God is often fighting for your marriage harder than you are. But we have to be obedient to God's working in us individually and maritally as a couple. Scripture tells us in Malachi, God hates divorce. But why does God hate divorce? That, that has been thrown at people and thrown at people, right? Why does God hate divorce? Because God hates the harm that's done in divorce. God sees an abandonment of the covenant as an act of injustice toward the innocent party. And God always defends those who are treated unjustly. That's why God makes allowances for divorce in Scripture. Because sometimes our hearts are so hardened towards God that divorce allows for justice to be brought to the innocent party. But God still hates divorce because he hates the sin that causes divorce. He hates the mess and the brokenness that results from divorce. But he loves you. And that's why his spirit fights for you and he places his spirit within the marriage covenant. He loves his people. And he hates to see a broken covenant, but he also hates treachery done against an innocent party within the covenant. And he loves his people and he fights for them. So, let's keep going, keep talking. Let's talk about Jesus and marriage for a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 32, it it, it tells us some more about this Christian marriage. Specifically to spirit-filled husbands and spirit-filled wives. So let's read, you got your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Starting verse 21, it says, Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. That is mutual submission. That's the word. That's the, that's the phrase that you, that you want to understand and know. Mutual submission. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the he- husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined into his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
So this mystery then of marriage refers to God's plan of redemption for his church, his bride. Collectively, all who have received Christ, received salvation through Christ, are part of his bride. This powerful image of Christ and the church in general, it, it permeates the marriage of one man and woman and all the details of their life. Without Jesus, it is impossible for the husband and wife to muster up enough strength and loving feelings or good intentions to fulfill their biblical role and calling in marriage for purpose and pleasure. But because of Jesus, two sinful, completely different individuals can be miraculously transformed into one. So these marriage roles defined by the cross, marriage roles defined by the cross, it's clear It is clear that the biblical roles of husband and wife are less about what the couple should do and more about what Jesus has done. Christian wives can look at the cross and see Jesus who freely submitted himself to the will of the Father to die in his place. Her submissive response is not one of a bad attitude, but one of Christ's attitude. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord, because the husband's the head of the wife, is Christ the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are submitted to their husbands in everything. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that the wife can't read a book. So, wives, submission is not. Let's talk about what submission is not. I want to read Peter from 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what Peter has to say about submission. What it kind of, it says, in the same way, wives, submit to your own husbands, to your own husbands. Um, so even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When you observe the, your pure, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him, Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. So according to Peter, according to what we've also read from Paul, Submission is not about women being less than men. It's about a marriage covenant. Peter wants us to know, hey, wives, don't think that outward beauty is the most important thing. Cultivate an inner beauty because submission is a heart posture, not a sign of inferiority. Did you hear that? Submission is a heart posture, not a sign of of inferiority. And we've already seen what Paul said. He said, submit to one another in the Lord. So there's a mutual submission, and we'll talk more about men's submission in a second. Women, submission does not mean a husband is in ultimate authority. It does not mean a wife cannot have independent thoughts or read books. It does not mean a wife does not seek to influence her husband. It does not mean a wife must obey her husband's command to sin. It does not mean a wife is less intelligent or competent than her husband. And a smart husband understands that if his wife is better at something than he is, let her do it. So what does submission mean? It means that a husband and wife are equal with roles that complement each other. 
Mutual submission means that marriage is 100-100, not 50-50 or 90-10. All in, all the time. Both parties giving everything. It also means this, if you're single ladies. It also means this. A single woman should only marry a man that she doesn't have to lead. And it also means this, a Christian marriage shows the Trinity and the gospel. What does it mean that a single lady should not marry a man she has to lead? It means that, you know what? Y'all should be working together. Together. You shouldn't have to marry a man that you feel like you have to drag to church. Shouldn't marry a man that you feel like you have to call him to make sure he got out of bed. Good work. Just practical stuff, right? Christian marriage then shows the Trinity and the gospel. Without Jesus, it's impossible for the husband and the wife to muster up enough strength, feelings, and good intentions to fulfill their biblical role in marriage. So likewise, husbands, you can look to the cross like your wives look to the cross, and you can look to the cross, and you can see Jesus who in love and humility laid his life down for someone else's sin. And then Jesus defeated death and hell in the grave and rose to live for and to love his church. Like Christ. Paul says in Philippians, this should ha- you should have this mind in yourself, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is the mind of Christ. This should be, it should be your mind. But in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who submitted himself even to death on a cross. So husbands, submission is something for you. In the same way that Christ... Christ now calls husbands to die to themselves and to live and love their wives and their children. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing like that, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. You are to love as Christ loved the church. I always remind men that, yes, Paul tells women to submit, but in the same passage, he tells men to submit as well. Mutual submission to one another. Wives submitting to their husbands, and we've already said what that means practically. And husbands submitting even to death to their self. Wives, husbands have to be willing to leave and lay down their lives. There's a submission, a mutual submission. We looked at what Peter said to women. Let's look at what Peter says to men, because this is important, men. Husbands, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, will live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is, again, submission. It's not lording over your wife, but seeking to understand her and honor her. 
not ruling as a tyrant, but serving as a husband. Yes, Peter does say she is weaker, but Peter, I believe, is talking about biological generalities. Nine out of ten times, the man is physically stronger than the woman. So treat her with honor. Don't use your strength against her. Use your strength for her. Understand that your wife's fears, because of the broken covenant of the garden, because we have a natural distrust for one another and a natural fear of covenant breaking because of our ancestry, understand that these fears are real and legitimate. And so husbands should live in a way that seeks to calm their wives' fears, not exacerbate their wives' fears. So honor your wife. Real, real quick, some practical ways to honor your wife. Honor her maritally. If you're taking notes, you want to write these things down. Honor her maritally. What does that mean? It means establish the right priorities. Be faithful to your wife. Be faithful to your wife. Honor her physically. Be strong for your wife, not strong against your wife. Honor her emotionally. Be emotionally present with her and intimate with her. Honor her verbally. Speak honorably to her and speak honorably of her, even if she's not around. Don't talk about how much you love her when you're with her and how much she gets on your nerves when you're away from her. Honor her verbally. Honor her financially. Help contribute to your marriage financially. Honor her practically. What are some things that you can do practically to show her you love her and to serve her? Maybe it means washing the dishes. Maybe it means maybe it means letting her have a night with her friends and going and getting some ice cream. Right? Honor her practically. Honor her parentally. Love your children. Show her that you love your children. Change their diapers. If they have diapers, they wear diapers, change their diapers. If you can feed them, feed them. Take them to church. Pray over your children. Pray over your wife. Let her see you pray over your children. Let her see you. Pray over her. Love your kids. Lead your kids practically. And honor her spiritually. Go to church. Read your Bible. Talk with her about God, the things of God. Did you notice Peter's warning to husbands? Did you notice that? Did you notice what Peter said? Let's just read it again real quick. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, 
It's with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace. Did you hear that? That co-heirs, that means the equals? Equals? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Here's what Peter's saying. If you don't honor your wives, if you don't honor your wife, your prayers will be hindered. God will not answer your prayers if you are willfully dishonoring your wife. So that should be a strong wake-up call to us men. Honor your wife. So what is God's vision for marriage then? Spirit-filled married couples have the opportunity to know and accept each other deeply. They learn that loving someone else in a mutually submissive way does not always come easy, but they get to learn to love each other as Christ loves them. We don't have to fear intimacy. We don't have to fear confessing our sin. And so that we can walk in freedom and in repentance. And because we have been given grace, we can show grace to our spouse. And because we have been offered forgiveness, we can offer forgiveness to our spouse. Because God has placed his spirit on us and is fighting for us, we can fight for us as well. And because God has been kind, we can be kind to each other. That's God's vision for marriage. It takes us all the way back to the garden to find our purpose and pleasure in the creation mandate to join in covenant with God and each other, to have children, to fill the earth, to bring order to rule. That's God's vision for marriage. And mutual submission to one another fulfills our purpose, and we can find pleasure in that. So let's let's end here. This wedded bliss, wedded bliss. The Bible ends with a marriage ceremony. We've sort of alluded to it in Revelation chapter 19. Let's look at it again real quick as this wedded bliss. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude. This is John, his vision, his revelation. He sees. I see something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write this down. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. So the story of God culminates in Jesus bringing his bride, the church, home to live with him permanently. Those who have trusted in Christ for salvation throughout history, whether anticipating his coming or looking back to when he came, will live with him forever. The marriage supper of the Lamb proves that the covenant-keeping God keeps his promises. He honors his promises, and that is our hope, and it will always be our hope as the bride of Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb is hope for you this morning, church. It's hope for you this morning, husband or wife. It's hope for you this morning, man or woman, that in Christ and by the Spirit, you can keep your marriage covenant 
and you will find pleasure and purpose in your spouse. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. If we don't act treacherously, but allow the Spirit of God within us and within our marriage to do the work it needs to do, we can find purpose and pleasure in that covenant. Heavenly Father, thank you so much this morning for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your covenant-keeping ways, your covenant-keeping nature. Thank you that you keep your promises. You keep covenant with us. I pray right now, God, for marriages. I pray for marriages that may be struggling, maybe on the brink. Maybe one has committed treachery against the other. Lord God, I do pray that there would be a forgiveness and a renewal. And I do pray, God, that you would fight not just for them in their marriage, but you would fight for them individually. Because ultimately, we're your, we're your people, we're your church, we belong to you, we're your bride. So fight for us, God. Lord, your covenant-keeping promises known to us and revealed to us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we partake of this covenant meal, pray, God, that we would find a renewed hope in your covenant-keeping nature and a renewed purpose and pleasure in keeping covenant with you. Lord, you promised, you promised that you would, that you would create in us a clean spirit, a new heart, that you would remove our heart of stone and you would write your words in our hearts. And this covenant keeping God keeps his word with Jesus. Who on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Take and eat. And he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for the remission of your sin. Drink all of it. New covenant. You are the covenant keeping God. And so this morning, this morning, God, we find our purpose and pleasure in you. And if we're married, help us to find purpose and pleasure in that covenant as well. This morning, church, just a moment, I will invite you to the table and you can receive communion. on your own 
And I want you to invite you, if you're married or if, if you're single, and you want prayer this morning, I invite you to stay here. If you're married, and you say, Pastor, I want you to pray over our marriage. Stay here, I want to pray for you. If you're single, but you say, you say, Pastor, I want you to pray over my singleness. I want you to pray for me in this. I want to pray for you. Can we stand together? I believe God wants to remind us again today that he is for us and not against us. And that he can help us find purpose and pleasure in him and in his good gifts to us. Can we just sing this together? And then I will invite you to the table in just a moment. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn And I just want to speak the name of Jesus Over fear and all anxiety To every soul held captive by depression I speak Jesus Your name is power Your name is healing, your name is love. So this morning I invite you to the tables as you, the Spirit draws you. If you want to come as a couple and stay here and receive as a couple, you're welcome. And then if you stay here and you would like prayer, just stay and I'll pray with you. But the tables are now open as the Spirit draws you to receive. Your name is power. Your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn like a Your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn like a fire.
Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the mystery of marriage that points us back to you and your covenant-keeping nature, that you are good, you are faithful, and you are true. I pray for this people, for this church, for those married, those who are single. I pray, God, that they would find purpose and pleasure in you and your covenant-keeping promises. Every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus. And we give you glory and honor and praise. The church said, amen. You may be seated. God bless you. We're so glad each and every one of you guys are here. What a wonderful message, right? I know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Scripture, we, we've said it before, uh, Scripture's a love story, right? It's, it's God coming back to us and, and, uh, or, or, or drawing us back to Him through Christ Jesus and, and uh, the completion of, of us to, to Christ is pictured through the marriage covenant, right? Just like Pastor talked about this morning. Uh, I am kind of glad Juliana wasn't in here because I'm sure she would love the part uh, that talked more about what men can contribute to the marriage. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, she's in kids. So um, speaking of which, speaking of, of spouses and marriage, y'all be sure to wish her a very happy birthday today. Uh, she turned 36 years old. Um, and it's amazing that uh, we've we've almost been married longer than we haven't been married. So we're super glad to be coming up on that uh, this year for us. Um, and, and again, for us, it's all about Christ in the center. Christ being the center of every decision that we make. Uh, and, and that helps keep our marriage strong because that's the, that's the purpose of the marriage covenant is, is to model 
us being drawn back to Christ. Again, we're so thankful each and every one of you guys are here. Uh, a couple of announcements for you guys. Of course, we have our regular Wednesday nights coming up. Um, so uh, we have Wednesday night meals. Let us know if you're going to be here so we can prepare enough food. It's a wonderful time to come and fellowship. Uh, it's $5 per person, $20 for every family of four or more. Uh, this Tuesday night uh, is going to be young adults. The young adults will be meeting here at the church uh, to pass out some VBS flyers. We are coming up on VBS, so the young adults are going to meet, pass out VBS flyers, and then go to eat. Uh, next Tuesday night, the, the young adults meeting will be a night of worship uh, and a night of prayer to cover the VBS that's coming up. Uh, speaking of VBS, next this Sunday, uh, we're going to be, uh, I believe, going out to Ford to get a few things to bring them back here. Next Sunday, we're asking for help. Uh, we, as, as soon as church is over, we're going to start setting up for VBS because it's the next weekend. Uh, this year's space theme, we need as much help as we can. If, if any of you guys were here last year, we decked this place out. It was like you were coming into a desert safari. It was, I know that desert safari sounds weird, but that's what it was. It was a desert safari. I was a safari guide. I was lost in the, in the wilderness or whatever. Um, but it was, it was wonderful, uh, and we were blessed. Shout out to Ford Church um, uh, for this year and last year. Uh, that's kingdom work. They pass along their stuff to us, uh, and, and so we're all blessed uh, by, by the things that God wants to do and that's working together that's us not putting our church ahead of another church that's kingdom work right so we're so glad about that um, uh, a couple let me make sure I'm getting all the announcements in here uh, yes oh your VBS shirts if you are working VBS the VBS shirts are ready see Michelle to pick yours up um, so as we get ready to come into VBS of course um, uh, we're going to give you guys the opportunity to sow into the church here, okay? Um, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I just, I, I didn't feel uh, we're about to take up offering uh, as you guys get ready to leave, give you guys the opportunity to give, amen, to worship the Lord with your tithe and your offering. Um, and honestly,